Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book nerds, culture vultures, people who like art, music, movies, photography, literature. If you want to reach these people, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once, including the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in an uninsulated box. This is you using headphones to avoid people. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for uh, listening. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for your listenership. I appreciate it deeply, and we'll think about it over the holidays as I sit in front of a fire. Great show for you today. Amina Kane is my guest. She is the author of two story collections. The first is called I Go to Some Hollow. That was published by Lafigue Press. And uh, the second story collection is called Creature, available now from Dorothy Books. Creature. I had a really good time talking with Amina. Uh, she's a person who has a calming presence. She exudes warmth and uh, deep intelligence. Just a very good person. And I really liked meeting her. She was kind enough to come over and sit down and talk with me. And you're going to hear that conversation in just a moment. Uh, quickly, I do have some mail before we get started. I wanted to read a letter from a listener. Uh, her name is Ashley. She writes, Dear Brad, I listen to other people all day at work, and I'm pretty sure it is starting to change my brain chemistry in a great way, in a rambly, monologue way. Uh, I want to thank you for making it feel okay to want to be a writer, even though I sit at a desk all day in a job with particularly crappy management. I have a question for you. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be making a move somewhere out west in the next year or so. How about Boulder, Colorado? I figured uh, I would ask the expert. I'm in need of some mountains. Maybe Portland, maybe Los Angeles for the ocean. Any advice slash favorite cities out that way? Hope this finds you well. This is probably super weird to say, but your podcast means a lot to me. Best of luck always, Ashley. So thank you, Ashley. It's very kind. 
I appreciate you uh, listening. I appreciate the kind words. As for your move, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Boulder's great. Boulder's very white. If you want to hang out with lots of white people all the time, every kind of white person imaginable, got your hippies, got your panhandlers, got your religious conservatives, got your uh, fitness freaks, got your Greenpeace, liberals. I mean, you got everything. It's the great, like if you want diversity of whiteness, Boulder's your place. It's got every kind of white person. Cornucopia of white. Uh, And just a beautiful city. Beautiful town. Picturesque. Great quality of life. Amazing schools. Has a bit of a diversity problem. Very affluent. Kind of a little uh, pocket. A bubble removed from the world if you if that sounds good to you and if you like the outdoors there are few uh towns in america that can match it for its quality of life Uh, otherwise i've never lived in portland i've been to portland only briefly years ago uh hear good things i you know i love los angeles i say that on the show all the time so i'm uh, i've got a bias i like los angeles i like the sun i like being warm i like no seasons The best thing to do is probably get in your car and just drive around or just pick a place. I have friends who live in Santa Fe. They love Santa Fe. That's another good smaller town, but also affluent. It feels like anywhere good is expensive in America. Anywhere you'd actually want to live, difficult to live financially. But, you know, Santa Barbara, hey. San Francisco, Seattle, all good choices for different reasons. Sort of depends. I, I would need I would need to know more about you, Ashley. I need to know more about your profile. What do you actually like? What do you What do you not like? Anyway, I wish you luck. Uh, so, what's going on with me? Uh, not a whole lot. I've, I'm just recovering. I went to a party this past weekend. I live on, like a very structured life in terms of sleep schedule because I'm doing nights with the baby and uh, I'm not sleeping a ton. I feel like everything has to be ritualized. I'm like, I'm existing in a very delicate equilibrium sleep wise, but I sort of blew it up this past weekend because there was a party on Saturday night at a friend's house and, uh, they happen to be particularly wealthy and they have a, a, an absolutely beautiful home. Uh, here in Los Angeles, like there was a valet, there was valet parking, catering, like bartenders. It was a very nice event. It's that kind of event. It's a little otherworldly. And I'm there with my wife and, uh, I'm drinking scotch because I'm nervous. I get nervous in, in these kinds of environments. I get nervous around wealth. I don't, I don't know if anybody else has this. Uh, I get nervous and I often feel bad, uh, because I'm always like, oh shit, I'm, I'm such a failure. I'm not providing uh, this kind of home, this kind of backyard, this kind of swimming pool for my family. Uh, I'm not even providing a fraction of this. And then uh, in addition to the nervousness and, uh, you know, self-criticism, I'm feeling a little angry, if I'm being honest. Like angry at myself, I guess. Maybe angry at the world. Uh, but not uh, angry at the people. It's not personal for me. It's just... Uh, 
It's upsetting to not be rich and then to be confronted with super affluence. For me. And uh, I just, I, I guess I can't shake the sense that in uh, America, we live in a caste system increasingly. Does anybody else feel like that? It's like, uh, you know, the rich have access to better schools, better public services, better everything. It's like two worlds. And uh, they're, they're now, uh, it was just announced this past week that they're now opening a new terminal at LAX, uh, Los Angeles International Airport for uh, rich people and celebrities to use when flying on commercial airlines. So if you can afford this, you can go to the new, uh, you know, rich slash celebrity terminal. It's not open yet, but it's imminent. And you pay like 1800 bucks, and you then have access to the rich terminal and you have a quiet, humane, luxurious airport experience and you get driven to your, to your flight on a golf cart or whatever. Like, I don't even think you pass through the normal terminal. I don't know how they're going to do it. The food is better. <laughs> like good restaurants in that terminal. And you know what? Uh, maybe this is nothing new. Certainly in, in other parts of the world, when it comes to a caste system, it's nothing new. But in America, I, I just can't help but get the sense that we've been moving in this direction my entire life. Like moving in the direction of uh, a stratified system, an oligarchy, whatever you want to call it. And it unnerves me. And I guess the question is why? Uh, maybe it's just a, a character flaw. Maybe it's a matter of personal failing. Maybe it's uh, an issue that I need to deal with. It probably is. It almost certainly is, at least on some level. Uh, some people, it's fair to say, uh, who are not of means, probably aren't as bothered by it as I am. But it bothers me. I worry about money too much. I, I'm just confused by it. Money, like money confuses me. And, uh, uh, and then maybe the other part of it is that I have access on occasion to this kind of super affluence in a first person way. And, uh, that's a function I think of living in Los Angeles. It's also a function of my privilege, like my white privilege and the fact that I come from an upper middle-class family. So I've been exposed even though I'm, you know, I myself am, am not upper middle class, you know, uh, it's pretty rare in the grand scheme of things, the kind of affluence I'm talking about. But living in Los Angeles, I've had some exposure to it, which probably isn't good for my health. At least it doesn't feel that way. You know, some of my friends uh, just happen to be uh, really wealthy and, uh, when you see how they live and compare it to how you live, it can, it, it, you know, it can fuck with your head. And when you're a parent and you see the kinds of opportunities educationally and otherwise that are afforded by this kind of uh, affluence, it can make you feel a little panicky. It can make you feel like you're failing. You can get to feeling like, oh, holy shit, uh, these people have better lives than we do. Their lives are better. Am I making an obvious point here? <laughs> it's like, yeah, no shit, dude. They have better lives. That's called the world. That's called inequality. That's called uh, the cruelty of the market or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I don't know. It bothers me. I almost wish I didn't know about it. I said, I said as much to my wife as we were driving home. I was like, you know, uh, when we're in our small little life in our, our rental house, and I'm not thinking about all this stuff, 
I'm happy. And she was like, yeah, me too. But then you go to some uh, giant mansion and the backyard is like Narnia and the house is decorated and gorgeous and huge and clean and you get the sense that these people, and this is, you know, I know this is a partially false sense, but you get the sense like, oh, they don't have to worry about anything. They can just travel. They can just send their kids to the best schools. They can just buy a big house. They can just throw a party. Uh, It fucks with my head. And I know that money doesn't buy happiness, right? That, you know, that whole saying, that old uh, adage, money doesn't buy happiness. The Hollywood Hills are littered with miserable rich people, right? That seems true. And I like to think uh, on a deeper level that I understand that devoting one's life to the pursuit of wealth is ultimately a fool's errand or worse, depending on you know how you do it. And that to accumulate wealth without uh, also cultivating like a deep sense of social responsibility and without ultimately giving it away to like to hoard money and objects with no sense of serious obligation to the less fortunate is I think probably not the wisest way to be in a world where so many people have so little and are suffering so much. And so maybe this gets to the heart of it. Like maybe this gets to the heart of my anxiety because it strikes me that to be wealthy is a serious responsibility. And I don't seem, I don't know. I don't want to get into judgment. It sounds too judgy. I think what I, I think, I wonder if I ever get wealthy. If I will take it seriously in the way that I think it needs to be taken seriously. Which is to say, I wonder if I'll walk my talk and if I'll give my money away. Because... Uh, I feel like, you know, I know a lot of people who are struggling. In addition to knowing people who are very wealthy, I also know a lot of people who are just, you know, hand to mouth. I'm a writer. (laughs) When you know writers, you know lots of these people. And uh, beyond that, I think I feel a a deep sensitivity to the poverty of the world. Maybe not as much as I should, but I definitely feel it. Like billions of people in the world barely having access to clean drinking water shit like that and we've got uh, people on this planet who who are holding billions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars 50 million dollars starting to sound like Bernie Sanders (laughs) the millionaires and the billionaires but uh, when I think about it that way when I consider uh, those kinds of grim realities buttressed against that kind of privilege, you know, that kind of, uh, holding can seem obscene to be holding on to those kinds of resources in light of the massiveness of human suffering and human need can seem obscene. And so then I guess the, the, a counterpoint might be to say, well, yeah, but look at Warren Buffett. He held on to his resources all throughout his life and was often criticized for not giving his money away. But because he's such a good money manager, such a good investor, he was able to play the long game and grow his wealth to an extraordinary degree and ultimately do even more good and give away even more money to the tune of like $50 billion. Or whatever it was. He's often, you know, Warren Buffett's like the, the he's the good billionaire, Right. And uh, I, I salute 
anybody uh, who's generous. So I don't know. I sincerely admire uh, him for doing that. But here's the thing about uh, poverty, as I understand it. It's an emergency situation for the people who are in it. Like the suffering of the world is an emergency situation. And so it can seem uh, crude at best to be like, well, no, wait, I'm playing the long game. And meanwhile, like people are dying. (laughs) They're starving. They're homeless. They never see their kids because they're working two jobs. I mean, just all this shit. bothers me if I ever have a million you know if I ever have millions of dollars if I ever am fortunate enough to become very wealthy uh, I I hope I would have the good sense to give it away quickly and not all of it yeah you got to take care of your own I, I don't begrudge anybody for taking care of their family I think it would have to be a long conversation about what that means I don't have the answer personally But when I talk about, uh, you know, giving it away or generosity, I'm not talking tithing. I'm not talking 10%. I, don't, I feel like the circumstances of the world require a, a much stronger move than that by the most fortunate. I don't know. Easy for me to say. I just wonder, like, about giving, like, uh, in my own life, I just got to keep talking about me. Like, can I give past the point of sacrifice? It's one thing to just give 10% when you're rich. 10% of $10 million, yeah, it's a lot of money, but it doesn't change anything. You're not sacrificing anything in terms of your lifestyle. You're still super rich. And you know what? Uh, If you make $100,000, you give away $10,000, whatever it is, you know, like, it can work on different scales. But what does it mean to actually sacrifice for other people and to maybe not have as much stuff or have as big of a house so that other people, you know, like what is the, uh, what is the bumper sticker that I used to always see in Boulder live simply so that others may simply live. That's what I mean. Am I sounding too idealistic? <laughs> Am I up on my soapbox? Uh, like what about not having three houses and 10 cars instead of just having like one smaller house and giving all that money away to some people living in like dung huts some, or just give it to a children's hospital. Is that a crazy thought? I don't understand. And I think that's probably a a large part of my problem. I, I don't understand money in the world how it works. I was talking to a a friend of mine, a wealthy uh, woman here in town, and I was saying as much. I was like, you know, I have this class anxiety. This shit bothers me. (laughs) And by the way, this is not what you're supposed to say to rich people, I don't think. I think it's considered uncouth to talk about your class anxiety. But, uh, you know, uh, if I can, if I have to hear about uh, a vacation in Tahiti, or like a new Tesla, then I feel like it's uh, okay for me to talk about class anxiety and my self-esteem problems and my writer's block. That's the deal, okay? That's our social contract. 
So I'm talking to my friend, she's wealthy, and I've had this conversation before in uh, different circumstances where I'm talking to somebody of means and I'm like, you know, this country, it's fucked up. The situation feels fucked. There's not enough uh, quality of opportunity anymore. And, uh, you know, so I was saying things along these lines and my friend says, well, you know, the life is not necessarily better. It's just different. To which I said, okay, well then let's trade places. Let's bridge our differences and come to understand one another better. I'll take your money. (laughs) You can have mine and we can see how things feel. And of course she was like, no fucking way. And we had a laugh and, you know, end of conversation. What are you going to do? That's when the needle goes off the record player. Well, let's switch places then. If the money doesn't matter, if it's not better, it's just different. I'm confused about this. Does anybody out there have any uh, clarity on this? I need a mentor. I need someone to teach me about money. True wealth is a what? The wealth of the soul, right? I think I might be a communist. I just want to live in a democracy with a democratically elected, benevolent, communist government. I don't know if I'm actually a communist. Am I a democratic socialist? I don't know what I am. I think I'm an idealist. I think I'm rambling. (laughs) I swear to God, I just meant to tell you about how I went to a party and had class anxiety and drank scotch. And then I I was talking to some people and I was like, hey, yeah, I'm experiencing class anxiety. And they sort of looked at me like I was an alien. That's how I roll at fancy parties. Who wants to play croquet? Anybody want to play croquet? Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Amina Kane. She is the author of two story collections, the first of which is called I Go to Some Hollow from Lafigue Press. And the second collection, Creature, is available now from Dorothy Books. Such a pleasure to talk with Amina. Uh, here she is, folks. This is Amina Kane. When I do go to places like London or Paris, I do kind of want to be in the past, you know, a little bit. Sure. And that's hard in many places in London to feel, but in Cambridge, I could kind of feel that still. Yeah. It was pretty easy. I find it hard. I mean, it's hard. It's very hard to access the past in Los Angeles. Yeah. Los Angeles is a very contemporary place. Mm-hmm. It feels like evergreen in a way. Um, even going back east and being in New York City or Boston, 
where there's some like whiff of history. Yeah. Uh, and I know that there are places where you can get that here, but it's not as easy to access for me. Yeah, I find that if I watch um, film noir movies, that's really helpful for me to kind of access yeah. old, older Los Angeles. Maybe that's why I love film noir movies. Yeah. Because it gives you that old L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was, what was I just, I was reading about the uh, Garden of Allah. Mm-hmm. Remember, like, the old club on Sunset and Crescent Heights? No, which is like, uh, I don't know that place, It was like an old place that, like, you know, like F. Scott Fitzgerald would go to when he lived here in, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, 30s or whatever it was, and... It was just like the place and uh, yeah. like old Hollywood history can be intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Um, for, you know, I'm, it, it's easy to fall into the thinking that everything was way better back in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a fantasy. Like men wearing hats. Like what, <laughs> what, you know what I'm saying? Like everyone looks so good. Yeah. I mean, you had to go out of the house just to go to the store and you're wearing like a half fedora and a suit. Yeah. Yeah. What, no, what happened to us? took more care maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you're back now. Mm-hmm. You're working on this book. How far along are you? Um, I'd say I'm about maybe half to three quarters of a full draft, you know, a rough draft. Can you see the end? Um, yeah, I can, I can kind of see the end. This might sound a little new agey, but um, about a month ago, I mean, I kind of know the end a little bit, but it's just been more like... How do I get from where I am in the book now to the end? But I had, I sort of had a vision of that in Shavasana in a yoga class last month. I know that sounds really. I love it. That sounds. I, don't I know, do yoga. But okay. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Shavasana, like you're just like you're almost like almost asleep in kind of like a semi dream state. Yeah. Except I often fall asleep. I do too. Shavasana. Oh yeah, these you're, days. Yeah, you're not supposed to, but it's actually really great. If I lie down, anywhere. Yeah. If, I, if I'm left alone <laughs> yeah, you'll for fall more than asleep. two minutes, I will fall asleep. Um, yeah, I've snored. I've done all of it. You know, you black out. But for people listening yeah. who might not be familiar, Shavasana is the last thing you do in a yoga class. It's also known as corpse pose. You basically just lie on your back and like you're dead. Yeah. And you rest. Mm-hmm. So you're in this uh, Shavasana and you had a vision of the end of your book. Was it, a, was it a visual or was it a line or like, how did it manifest? It was kind of a visual. Yeah. Between these two characters. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the main character leaves, she kind of leaves the situation in her life that she's in, but I haven't known what the thing is, you know, what would happen that would make her leave. Um, so I kind of saw the thing that makes her leave. And you were certain about it. It felt pretty certain, you know, but yeah. anything's possible. What kind of yoga know, were you, you doing? We're going to try to, people are going to be listening. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> do I go to Bikram? <laughs> um, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a vinyasa class, okay. but one of my favorites, you know, I, I have favorite teachers and, um, they, I feel kind of take me to a deeper place in the classes than others. So how much this, yoga are you doing? Um, at this point, maybe three times a week. That's pretty good. Yeah. Like level two, three. Yeah, I'm kind of always an intermediate. Like I've I, always been. I like a challenging class. That doesn't mean I can do it all. Yeah. But I don't. I don't like a class where I don't like really. I call it getting wrung out. I like to get yeah. wrung out. Yeah, that's when shavasana feels the best. I think. Yeah, you sweat. Yeah. And how how many years have you been doing that? Um, since I was in high school. I mean, so no shit. A really long time, but of course there were periods where I wasn't doing it as much or like. The studio that I go to, um, I used to live around the corner from it. So there was a point where I was going like five days a week and now I have to drive there. So it's like three. So, you know, it's varied like how often I'm doing it and 
So, um, yeah, we were saying before we came on, I think you're from Ohio. Mm-hmm. Who's doing yoga in high school in Ohio? That doesn't seem like <laughs> something that, because I'm from Indiana. Yeah. There was no yoga in Indiana back when I was yeah. in high school. There was very little of it, but um, there was this kind of new agey shop. And then they would have, it wasn't a yoga studio, but like, I think maybe once or twice a week they would have a class. So mm-hmm. it was very limited, but. You were doing it. Where yeah. are you from in Ohio? Canton, Ohio. Home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, I've never been there. Ever. No, you're like, I was at the New Age shop doing yoga. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was at the New Age shop the whole time. But uh, yeah, it was next to my high school, but I just, I didn't go. Born and raised? No, I'm, I was born in Cleveland. I mean, but I wasn't actually really living in Cleveland at the time. I started my life out in Florida, in Key West, and then Nashville, Tennessee. And then, so it, you know, I guess it's a coincidence in a way that I ended up moving to Ohio when what, I was five. What are your parents doing if you were in Key West and then Nashville? And um, Well, I don't know. I guess they were living in different places, you know. No, I mean, it's of, like what brought them to Key West? Um, well, my mom's from Florida. She, oh. Like I have, you know, Daytona Beach is such a, that's where my mom was born. Um, and it's such a touristy place. But she was born there. Her father was born there. And I believe... His mother was born there too, so just have these kind of roots in Florida. Yeah. You go back? So, no, I haven't. I haven't been there um, since I was in my late twenties, actually, and I haven't thought about Florida so much. But more recently, I've been thinking about Florida because it's, it's a strange place. Yeah. I mean, and not necessarily in a bad way. You know, it's just like it's a very interesting soup. Yeah. I've always found that it's not great culturally, but the land I really love there. I mean, the swamps and the ocean, and I like that parts of it are kind of subtropical and, you know, just what that brings. Um, and lately I've kind of been wanting to be in that kind of place. So I feel like I may go to Florida again soon. To live. No, no, not to live. To visit. <laughs> Spring break. No, I... <laughs> Spring break 2016. Yeah. Amina Kane, Daytona Beach. Yeah. Yeah, I probably won't go during spring break, but who knows? Maybe that's when I should go, you know? Maybe. Experience it in that way. It's, uh, it's filthy. Um, I think back, because I went to Florida for spring break in high school. Mm-hmm. Just the conditions you live in. Yeah. The, the, those hotels, disgusting. Yeah. There's not enough bleach. Yeah. There just isn't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the hotels because I never... My grandmother lived there, so I never stayed in a hotel. Right. But she actually... Um, she cleaned hotels. So she cleaned those hotels oh. that, and she probably cleaned them during spring break and things like that. See these, what do they pay? But, they don't pay these people enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that sounds hellish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it was. Oh. So, yeah. okay. So, uh, your folks, artistic people, um, they've not, I mean, my mom draws, um, and my dad does a radio show. I mean, they're, they're, um, they're definitely probably not like, well, I shouldn't say there's like a typical Ohio person. That's probably not a good thing to say, but, um, they're both really creative and, um, they were hippies, um, and probably are still like part hippie. And my dad, um, he like, like back to the land or like what, what kind of hippies? Um, they were actually when I was, when I was little and this isn't really the case now, they were kind of, um, like Jesus Christ superstar hippies, oh. sort of like hippie Christians. Yeah. Um, and my dad, I mean, it's, it's not entirely that. I mean, like my dad, he, when I was little, he would play Frank Zappa or Captain Beefheart. And I was just 
it drove me crazy. I was just like, what is this? You know, like, and I was really embarrassed by it if a friend came over, you know, so, um, so they're, yeah, they're, you know, my mom is a big environmentalist, like they're very liberal. Um, you get along with them. Yeah. Good childhood. Yeah. Good childhood. You have any siblings? No. Just you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, your parents and Frank Zappa. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and you were raised yeah. in Canton. Um, at some point, it, it sounds like you wanted to get out of there. Yeah. How early? Well, um, I guess when I left, I was about 22 or 23. Um, but I dreamed of leaving from age nine onward. That's early. Yeah. I dreamed of going to Florida at that time. And then later it became New York. So it's so interesting. And I feel like uh, well, part of it is just the weather. I think when you're raised in that Midwestern milieu, those winters really grind uh, at a, like Once you hit like February... Yeah. March and you're like, oh my God, I just need sun. Yeah. And so Florida, you know, in that part of the country for me, that Florida was like a place of the imagination. It was warm. Yeah. It was beautiful. There were beaches and the water was green. It just seemed completely exotic to me. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was little. So my wife is from Minnesota. She Uh wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh, (laughs) She's like freezing (laughs) her ass off. No, she's horrible at science Mm -hmm. and math. But she, uh, she was just like freezing her ass off in Minnesota. And she's like, I just want to hang with dolphins. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so, a real fantasy. That's I think. a thing. <laughs> and, yeah. And I just think I was aware from a very early age that there was this whole world out there that was not Ohio and I wanted to see it. How did you I get think. access to it? Was it uh, simply, was it through television? Was it through books? Some combination? I think it was through books and then it was through things when I was little, when I was younger, it was through things like Woody Allen movies. I mean, that's probably how I first started to think about New York. You know, yeah, that's Woody the New York. Movies. That's kind of the New York you want to step into, isn't it? Yeah. Like Upper East Side apartments, and like you yeah. know, the leaves are changing in Central Park, and mm-hmm. everyone's like neurotic and brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, what books? I mean, I, I, I want to ask these questions, but I want to issue the caveat that I know these questions are tough. That when you put somebody on the spot, you're like, "What book when you were a kid really opened you up?" But like, you talk about having a sense of the wider world and wanting to leave Canton from the age of nine. Like, was there a book that you read as a child uh, or a couple of books that were you know really uh you know got a hold of you and got a hold of your imagination and gave you access i mean i think really basic ones like the catch like the catcher in the rye or you know just other jd salinger books you know when i was like a in junior high or a teenager um i there was a point when i was younger uh, it's not so much the case now um where i really liked you know, the beat writers, Jack Kerouac and Allen sure. Ginsberg and stuff like that. So I think that's, you know, those are the books that probably, while I'm not reading them now, kind of started me. Everybody reads the beats in like high school or early college. Yeah. And then most people I talk to on the show say they love the beats, but then they're like, but that was just a phase. Yeah. Like everyone, they always everyone <laughs> always disavows the beats. And I wonder, yeah. I mean, why do you think that is? Is there something childish about the beats that it's like, it's like, it's important to put a, a punctuation mark on yeah. your beat interest. By the mm-hmm. way, there's like a very loud machine running right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. I don't a know what the or something. Okay, well, let's just let it go. Yeah. So the beats. Uh, are you still into it? Uh, have you disavowed? No, I've not disavowed. I mean, I, it's just been a long time since I, I. I think what happened is that other writers just became more important to me, and it was kind of um, maybe it's easier to stumble upon the beats or have your parents hand you books by them. Um, and it's just that the writers who've, I don't know, I think those writers made me want to 
travel or they made me want to leave where I was or experience the world, but I don't know that they inspired me to write necessarily. Yeah. Um, and I, that's something I've just been really aware of lately, like the difference between books that I read that I might really enjoy, but that do not, I actually can't write while I'm reading them. And then books where I read them and it's like a combination, it's uh, like a combination of not wanting to put the book down, but also like wanting to put the book down so that I can start writing. Yeah, that's an interesting point because some like, I feel like maybe there's certain books like you can hear the music and you know how to play it and other books you can just hear the music. Mm -hmm. And uh, is there a writer that you can think of that you, when you read makes you want to play? Yeah, definitely. Um, Renee Gladman is a writer that when I read her books, um, yeah, I, it's that it's that battle of like, God, do I... Like, I want to keep reading, but also I want to write because it's like I can't read her without kind of being catapulted into that. Well, um, you, why? Is it just like the, is it the subject matter? Is it her prose style? All of the above? I don't know that it's the subject matter. I mean, I feel like with writers like that, they could really be writing about anything. You know, it's, it's something, for me, I think it's something in the narrative voice, although I don't know that a phrase like narrative voice is useful in thinking about Renee Gladman's writing. It's, it's more, it's like the space she creates or what she does with her sentences. And, um, I'm definitely one of those fiction writers who, you know, I can enjoy plot, but I'm, I'm often really taken in by someone's sentences or, um, just the images they're creating or, you know, um, a person's interior, yeah. Like access and I like a person's, I like when I'm getting like a person's deep thoughts. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily, they don't necessarily have to be in like a car chase. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just something about, yeah, the interior, the, the interiority of it. So I think. when did you start writing? Um, I feel like I came to it sort of late in a way compared to other people because I mean, I wrote in junior high and high school the same way I think everyone does where you just write like really bad poetry. So I mean, I did that, but I, I didn't really, um, in college, my last year in college, I was a women's studies major and where'd you go to college? Uh, Ohio state, the University. Ohio state university, the Ohio state university. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's, um, and I, you know, and I never really thought I was going to do anything with that major. It was just that I didn't, for me, like college was a time to learn about things. It wasn't about a job or anything like that. And I had started out as a theater major and then kind of quickly realized that that wasn't, I wasn't meant to be an actress. And You don't like to be on stage? No, it's not that I don't like to be on stage. It just somehow didn't feel like my world. Like I didn't feel like a theater person or... I remember the theater people from high school. There was like a very uh, significant theater presence in my high school. And like there was a group called the Ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And they were like deep into the theater. Yeah. And they would all hang out together. They were like very enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess the word theatrical comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they would like sit around and like sing with each other. And mm -hmm. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I'm not really that person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so in my last year in college, I started taking writing workshops and that's when I kind of started to realize like, oh, I think this is what I was meant to do or, you know, um, so I took poetry and fiction workshops and then I took a couple of years off and moved to San Francisco and. Um, how was that? It was great. It was great. I mean, I, it was really exciting. Why San Francisco? Um, I had spent a summer when I was 19 in Nevada city, California. Um, uh, do you know Nevada city at all? Uh -uh. That, like up in the Sierras. Some, is it near like Truckee or whatever? Or? Uh, no, not 
too far, like kind of past Sacramento and, you know, in the Sierra Nevadas. It's okay. really pretty. And during that time, we went to San Francisco and um, I just fell in love with it. It's a beautiful moment. city. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, after college, you know, I'm going to move here. And, um, and maybe partly inspired by the beats, probably, you sure. know, like all the reading I had done. And, um, but anyway, so I took two years off. And then when I was applying to graduate school, you know, I decided I'd apply to graduate school for creative writing. And I didn't really know, like, should I apply for poetry or fiction? And then fiction just felt like, you know, what I was the right answer, which it has been um, for sure. But it, I just didn't know at first. And um, to be honest, I didn't write very much during that time. And then I got to grad school and I did write a lot because I'm a good student. And grad if school I where? Um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. Um, and so I think there was this question when I finished, like, well, I keep writing. Um, and I did. And then just, you know, since that since that time, it's just become more and more important to me. And now it's something I, I if I go a certain period without doing it, that I go kind of crazy, kind of like if I don't get exercise or something We're like that. We're very much alike, Amina. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm wired exactly <laughs> the same way. Yeah. I have to move. Yeah. Or I lose it. Yeah. Yeah, I go really insane. So, um, yeah, I can't even remember the question that kind of started me off. Well, just getting this. to San Francisco and uh, and then getting to graduate school. Yeah. And, um, you know, at that point, feeling like you're fairly solid in your identity as a fiction writer. Like, this is yeah. what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Did you feel um, like this is how I'm going to make my living? No, I've never thought that. I mean, I would like to, you know, but I've never thought that I would make my living writing. Um, just Sensible because, girl. Yeah. I mean, it just seems harder and harder to do these days. But I also know that um, the kind of fiction I write is, you know, and it's always hard to kind of categorize, you know, the kind of work that you do. But I, I sometimes think or say that I, I feel like I have one foot in the experimental in experimental fiction and one in literary fiction so it's you know I, and I'm not driven by plot necessarily when I'm writing so I think you know that that kind of work just isn't a big seller you know it's it's maybe not isn't that's interesting to hear you say that because I think I can kind of feel the same way like I, I read you see a book take off or you see a writer explode and you see you know they have all sorts of uh you know, massive book sales and movie deals. And like, you can just see the culture sort of like absorb them in that way. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I can't do that. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning I was just, it was very clear to me that the writing I was doing, you know, that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and so I was sort of excited, uh, to have any readers at all, you know, just to feel like, (laughs) Oh my God, I have readers. And like someone wrote about my book and I love you 12 people, (laughs) but you know, because this is the thing, like I could be, or you could be, or anyone out there could be fooling themselves. Like who knows what's yeah. going to, what's going to grab millions of readers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people out there who have that circumstance for themselves who never in a million years dreamed that their weird little book was going to connect with that many people. Right. Yeah. So like, I think like maybe it's like what I'm talking about. It's like a feeling of oddness or otherness or feeling like you live in left field. Yeah. But maybe who knows? I mean, well, I mean, it has changed a bit, I think because, um, you know, and maybe, you know, it's like an interesting thing to admit, but, and it's part, you know, I I published, um, both of my books with small presses and, um, Dorothy, who, who just published my last book, Creature, 
I love. I mean, it's been amazing to work with them, and I would kind of just work with them for the rest of my life. But there is, you know, if you're publishing with a small press, there is um, there's a place kind of, you know, there just isn't as much visibility. Like 75 to 90 percent of bookstores won't have your book, or you know, you'll get reviewed, and and maybe in like there'll be like a super great place or two, you know. But there there are just certain publications that will probably never review your book, and so I think like maybe more recently, like I've kind of hit up against that, you know, or I've been, you know, have you ever thought to yourself, I'm going to shift the kind, I'm going to try to write a book with wider commercial appeal. Can you game it that way? No, I can't like writing. I mean, for one thing, you know, I love writing, but it's, um, it's so hard. Like, and I, I, I never, I mean, I write from such a blank page, all of the stories I've written, always come just from either like a total blank page or just the fuzziest little thing that's, you know, getting me started, whether it's just like part of a line or like a very unclear image or feeling, you know, that I know I have to move towards. Um, but, you know, the novel that I'm working on now, and it's the first time, well, I did try to write one novel years ago, mostly because people are like, you should write a novel, like, you know, like, especially short stories don't sell, you know, so that I felt like that was kind of the wrong reason to write one. And, but this time I felt compelled to write one. I mean, I wanted to challenge myself and I found myself like moving towards a more singular voice, you know, in the stories and creature. Um, so, but even that I started from the blankest place. Like I, I'm not someone who can kind of have an idea and then work from that or like outline, or I really have to just discover it the whole way through. And so, you know, I think, people have suggested before like well why don't you just write and I know some people can do this they can write like a romance you know or something and and make money that way or they can do a certain kind of writing um and I just can't like it's just not even an option for me it's it's like a very personal experience like I'll I'll think those same thoughts like I can't do that Mm -hmm. I can't write like on the side under a pen name like a mystery novel or some sort of like thriller about a CIA agent like to sit down and do the work is, is really hard for me. And I feel like maybe it's got to be coming from like a really true place for me to even be able to access it or to get myself to sit down to do it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Maybe, or maybe that's like, because this is, we go back to me arguing with myself. You know, I can also like take the other side of the table and be like, you're just being a baby. Write the <laughs> CIA book. It's called yeah. work, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but I want it to mean something or, you know, yeah. I'm, I take it. Um, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, you know, Joanna Ruoko, and not that I mean, you know, because I've already talked about Renee Gladman, so I'm probably sounds like I'm just like talking about Dorothy authors here, but I really do kind of love them. Um, she's someone I, I've only met her once. I don't, I don't know her and I've only read her Dorothy book. I haven't read her other books yet, but I know that she, under a pen name, writes romances, like a series of romances that are successful. And um, romance novels sell. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's great that she can do that. I mean, and there's kind of, there's a separation for her, you know, because if you read, you know, Dan, you know, her most recent book, you would, it would be strange to think that she could do that, but she can. And so I don't think it's bad at all. No. If people do that, it's just that even if I wanted to, I just can't really, Yeah, it's not really an option. Maybe I'll try. You should try. Be the worst romance novel ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I, I think hard for me to even like, conceive of what it would be. Yeah. Uh, I have, but you know, then again, I think like if I, if I just read 
25 romance novels, I probably have an idea. I, I don't read it. So it's like, it's yeah. not, it's not in my brain. Right. I'm sure. Which I could, could be a good thing. Maybe. In terms of writing one. <laughs> yeah. But people have such specific tastes. A friend of mine for a while was really thinking that he was going to write like alien porn or something like that. Like people have we fetishes. All have, we all have and that they, thought. Yeah. And, and so there's like a marketplace for like really specific weird things. Yeah. And maybe something like that could be fun for someone to write. I don't know. More yeah. than like a straight romance. Well, it's like there's a guy I was reading online who writes all this self-help stuff, but kind of like how to succeed mm-hmm. in business and art. Yeah. Um, makes a mint. Mm-hmm. You know, like just yeah. cranking out like eBooks and like, yeah, there are people that know how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. There are ways to like, like there are like hungry readers out there that if you can build up a little identity and they can find you it seems like it can be done yeah uh, i don't know how yeah. to do it <laughs> yeah yeah it's beyond me yeah but. you know so um you go to graduate school in chicago after you lived in san francisco mm-hmm. and then you froze again during graduate school and then you left graduate school and came out here again no i um i moved to new york for six months and then i moved back to chicago and then i moved back to the bay area to Oakland and then I moved back to Chicago and then um damn what was going seven, on <laughs> and then seven and a half years ago I moved here and now I'm just here to stay okay uh, I think um well I think that um I think I had not found my home yet and that Chicago was kind of an easy place for me to be in because I met some of my favorite people there I mean they all many of them left too um but also I just had work and you know it was just I always felt like the Bay Area was kind of kicking me out a little bit financially just in terms of work and things you're not the first person I've talked to who said that yeah I'm sure everyone feels people in the arts people in the arts community in the Bay Area yeah it's not easy to be there in that capacity yeah but also you know strangely or maybe it's not so strange I just really love LA and I every place I moved to I always knew Chicago wasn't like where I would live forever and I thought the Bay Area should be like a place I would want to live in forever, but even given it's kicking me out, I didn't love it once I really, I loved it at first, you know, when I was 23. Um, Everybody loves it at 23. Yeah. Yeah. But LA is the place that I've loved. I love LA too. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. (laughs) I'm not the only crazy one. It's a good city. Yeah. Um, It's an expensive place to live, but you can uh, live here as an artist. Yeah. You know, if like you're out and like there, there are places to be and like mm-hmm. there are space, there's space to like have like a visual art studio. You might yeah, have to live in yeah. like a brewery or, you know, live mm-hmm. in some sort of uh strange, like industrial loft, but like that stuff exists. Yeah. You know, so that's yeah. the, up, that's the upside I think to the landmass. The fact that it's such a big place, you know, geographically is that there's lots of real estate. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways to live here. Uh, yeah. Lots of different types of places. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you're here for the duration. You're working as a writer. Um, are you a person who like, uh, like how much time do you need alone? A lot. A lot. Yeah. Is this like, you're going to go home and take a nap after this? <laughs> <laughs> this is like not so bad, you know, so I might not have to take a nap after this, okay. but I mean, friendship is very important to me. It's something that I write about a little bit too. Um, and I'm very interested in. And so, and it's been a really important part of my life. So do you have a lot do, of good friends? I do. Yeah. 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 Do you I work at really, it? 
Uh, I mean, I work at it in the sense that I try to be a good friend, but I'm horrible at making friends. So I don't, most of the friends I have have been because they made the first step, you know, and kind of asked me to do something with them. I'm really bad about, about asking someone else to do something if I don't know them very well. I mean, occasionally I do, but yeah. But you um, have your friend. Cause I find like, that's an interesting question for me as an adult. I've talked about this on recent episodes, like, you know, building and maintaining friendships as an adult versus building and maintaining friendships as a younger person. Mm-hmm. It seems like as an adult, it's harder. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Cause I was, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago and, um, and this probably sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not trying to brag, but I just had this feeling like where, and maybe it's cause I do need lots of time alone. I was like, my social life is too busy. You know, I was like, there, there's, there are always things to do. And you there are, are always in demand. To see. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that's the case. I just think maybe it's, you know, like, um, my husband and I have not had children. Like we, you know, there's not the sense that we need to be like at home with our family and, um, and that you're like, not going to have kids. No, yeah. no. And so, you know, I don't know what it is, but I think in my head, and it's an interesting thing about life. You think, you know, what it will be like or how things will unfold. I think I always thought like, yeah, you know, because I'm 43, when you're 43, it's really hard to make friends or it's hard to have friends, but it just hasn't been the case. I mean, um, and yeah, I have this thing where I love, if I love people, I love them immensely, you know? So I just have some friends that I just love deeply and immensely. And yeah. Okay. So for people who are listening, I feel like, I mean, like you project a calm mm-hmm. and I, you project like a, um, a spiritualness. Oh, that's good. Are you into that <laughs> stuff? I mean, you do yoga. Uh, like, are you somebody who, uh, like gets into meditation and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I've really fallen out of meditation to be honest. Um, it's something that I did a lot more of in Chicago. Um, there was a, in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a group ancient dragons and gate in Chicago that I sat with regularly and was what were they called? Act, ancient dragons and gate. Okay. Um, in Chicago and, um, I was very involved there. And then I spent a summer, um, living at Tassajara was in Buddhist monastery, um, in Carmel Valley. Okay. So north of here, but, um, how was that? Okay. So stop for a second. First okay. of all, sitting in a group, cause I sit, mm-hmm. a, I sit alone. I do meditation alone. Um, and I've read, it's like when you sit in a group, it's a much more charged experience and it can really deepen things. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. It helps a lot. I mean, um, I think part of the reason, well, part of it's laziness, you know, not being disciplined that I'm not sitting as much now. And part of it is, is that sitting with that group, having this group, I really felt connected to, um, helped me. Is there there a detectable energy? Yeah. I mean, not to get to, not to get to like uh, hooga booga, but -hmm. you know, like I feel like when people are in a room, I think there's collective energy. Like if everyone's pissed off, you can feel that. If everyone's elated, you can feel that. If everyone's peaceful and sitting and mindful, you would theoretically be able to feel that and pick up on that and draw on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot you can feel and you know, everyone's in the kind of, um, Soto's in the kind of meditation I've done the most of it's pretty strict and you can move, but you know, you're not supposed, you're supposed to try not to move. You know, I've been to other like Shambhala meditations where people like drink tea, you know, and do and move and kind of take off their jacket, which isn't bad. Like I'm, I'm sort of describing as if it's a bad thing. It's just, I think I was drawn to the, like the stricter 
kind. How can you be um, meditating and drinking tea and taking off your jacket? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's... I mean, do it mindfully, or but you know. But I think yeah. you need to be like. There's something about stillness as being uh, central to the to the uh, experience, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot you can hear. You know, you can just hear people shifting, and you can hear the care with which they shift or not. You know, and and you know everyone can hear you. And um, I don't know. I think because it's just so quiet and still, you're, you are more mindful. I mean, part of it's because you like want to appear to be like a good meditator, you know, but that helps like, um, fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so Tassahara, is that what it's called? Yeah. That's like way up in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. I've, I've yeah. looked at it online. You spent a summer there. Yeah. So what are you doing up there? Well, and summer is the less intense time to be there because guests come in right. um, and you're not meditating as much as you would if you're there during the regular winter practice the winter the winter sessions are the deepest yeah those are the really intense ones but summer was intense for me you know because i had never done anything i'd been meditating but not to that extent um and not yeah it's really hard to get to it takes um from carmel valley it to you know that town it takes like two hours to get there on a really rocky road um that not all cars should even go on because they could get messed up like yeah. just um so it's yeah it's really removed and you're if you're there for three months you're not supposed to leave so you definitely it it's this interesting thing that when you do leave it it's hard like you're like oh, i'm coming back out into the world and the world feels like this different place you know you're kind you of spent in this container and you were up there, there for three months mm-hmm. okay what is the yeah. typical day like there um well i was there during a work practice um time which is what happens in the summer and so you know you wake up very early you wake up maybe this was many years ago i think around like five or so you know but it's still dark and if you're there in the winter you wake up at like three forty-five. um but you know when you go and sit you know you go to morning zazen and um and then after everybody kind of does some work and then there's breakfast which is silent um and so then that would drive me crazy everyone's chewing yeah, it's uh, nice though. It's it? nice. The thing that's nice about it for me is that I hate small talk, you know, and um, we all do so much of it. We all kind of have to do it. And I do it for a living. <laughs> yeah, but this doesn't even feel like small talk. I know, no, no. You know? We're talking about Zen, for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah. And so I really like being with people and not talking to them, like not being able to, like having the thing actually that you're not supposed to. Yeah. You know, well, and especially if you're trying to access that part of yourself and you're trying to. Um, practice mindfulness and like paying it like close attention, like the burden of having to communicate and entertain and make small talk uh, can really interfere with that. It can be a relief. It's, you know, to to be with people, but know that like the rule is we don't talk. Right. Um, So you're there for a summer, you're doing work, like you're helping what garden and clean um, the dojo I was, or... I was cleaning, um, cabins. I was put on the cabin crew. So I was cleaning, I started out in the kitchen and then they put me on the cabin crew and, um, and cleaning toilets. And I have this whole, like, not to get into it too much, but sort of like history of class issues or like, cla- like thinking about class from a very small age, um, or young age. And, I think part of what happens there is that if there's something, if you have some issue or there's something you don't want to be doing, like that's the crew you'll be put on, you know? So it's like much harder, like 
you know, there are always these stories about like mindful chopping of a carrot or something like that. But it's like, how do you get to something like that when you're cleaning a toilet every day? You know, like you're supposed to clean it mindfully, right? That's what they're like. Yeah, I mean, I guess. But but I think there's <laughs> I think there's, you know, it makes sense to me that that's the crew that I was put onto, you know, because that's like an issue I probably still carried with me. Sure. In a way. So, yeah. Lots and... of cleaning. Silent. We're supposed to be silent while we're doing it, but sometimes if you're cleaning with someone, you start talking. Like, like, no one's around. <laughs> you're in a cabin together, so you just start. How's it going over there? You're in, like, an adjoining <laughs> stall. Yeah. Um, did you have any breakthroughs? Um, any, like, like specific moments of transcendence or, like, I've heard a friend, I have a friend who did, like, a, you know, a month-long silent retreat. And like, you know, this is a buddy of mine guy mm -hmm. and he's writing me a letter and he's like telling me like how the middle of a meditation just starts like bawling, like, yeah. like a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, like those kinds of things are common. Yeah. Yeah. Or like semi-common yeah. in that environment. Like, and, and it wasn't something that he wrote like with, uh, embarrassment or like, oh my God, disdain. It was more like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a wow moment. Yeah. It becomes interesting. It becomes very interesting. In a way. Did anything like that happen for you? Yeah. I mean, uh, strangely enough I was just a friend wrote me and he, he was talking about meditation and um, he was saying that it's been bringing up a lot of dark stuff and I was like yeah I think it can and I um, definitely and I, I talked about how people would sometimes cry in the zendo you know during meditation you would just hear them and I think I did a couple times but yeah I mean my if there were any like and I do really believe in transcendence um, you know I I mean, I don't know exactly like what the definition of it is, but I feel like I've experienced it many times, but someone else might experience the same moment and say like, no, that's not transcendent enough. That's just a very simple moment that you're describing. So when you talk um, about that and it gets hard to define, but like, what does transcendence mean? Like a feeling, a feeling of deep connection with the universe. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I mean, and I may also be, I'm a little addicted to, um, well, I wouldn't say addicted. That's like a strong word, but to sort of elevated like feelings and experiences. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of someone, drugs? No. Never. Because I'm a health nut. So, okay. yeah. Vegetarian? Um, mm -hmm. Uh huh. I like that. I'm total health. Like, I'm susceptible to any health craze. Yeah. What should I be doing? What kind of supplements should I be taking? Well, I don't take supplements because okay. I feel like you should get your vitamins and minerals through your diet. You know, not, like you should be eating that well. That... I don't take supplements. I was just asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm supposed to, but as vegans or vegetarians, they sometimes say like B-complex, vitamin and like vitamin yeah, D. Yeah, B12. And B I was vegan for 10 years, so I took B12 during that time. But... Not, I mean, it's hard to be vegan. I'm what, you know, there's like canvas in my shoes. So like, yeah. I, you know, it's hard to do. Yeah. No, me too. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I think I get confused between, or, or maybe I get confused between like what is truly transcendental and like what is just like an elevated moment, you know? So it's it, like, it's hard for me to say that, that I've experienced them or not. But, and I think like even within Buddhism, like, you know, people would say like, it's not about elevated or heightened experiences or moments at all. Um, and so I think it's tricky for me to kind of equate them, but um I don't, I think more like, like I can be made so easily happy in a certain moment. Like if I'm in a certain landscape, like I used to feel like I had these moments of transcendence riding my bike, like through Chicago at night. I mean, which sounds like someone else would say that's not transcendent. No, but, but I, okay. 
I don't mean to cut you off. No, no. But I had like a very like you know how you have like these weird episodes or moments in your life that just stick with you forever. Mm-hmm. I was in New York City in April. My wife and I went out there. This is before we had kids, or my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and it was April, and it was like the beautiful spring, like the most beautiful spring weekend in New York City you could possibly ask for. Like perfectly yeah. clear blue skies, warm sun, cool breeze. And I rented a bicycle and I went for a ride in Central Park and uh, I want to say it was the cherry blossoms were mm-hmm. out. And I had my headphones on yeah. and I was listening to like the Beatles, mm-hmm. <laughs> like riding by <laughs> strawberry fields. And it was just yeah. like, and it was like, I felt amazing. I mm-hmm. got off the bike and just like sat on a bench and was just like, this is it. Yeah. And it's hard to describe beyond that, but I'll never yeah. forget it. I felt so good. Yeah. And I, everything was clear. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Moments like that. I also feel like I've sort of with in friendship, like to go back to friendship, I feel like I've had moments like that, you know, just how interesting it can be to know someone. Um, But like as far as being in the, you know, as far as being at Tassajara, I didn't have any sort of like classic transcendent moments. I mean, mostly I struggled. Like I had a real and I do in general have a love hate relationship to not like short periods of meditation, but like retreats, you know, where you're doing it all weekend. You're just kind of meditating constantly. Um, or, you know, being in a monastery for three, like I really struggle. Like I, part of me hates it, you know, and part of me, there's no escape. Yeah. Part of me loves it. Part of it feels really necessary. And so, um, there were questions that were interesting to ask myself during that time. You know, when you're at Tassajara, there are rules you're supposed to follow. And I, you know, and so just even see yourself in relationship to breaking rules. Like I did break rules. Like that, what? Um, like there's a place called the Narrows. It's really beautiful that you're not really supposed to go swimming in because people swim there nude. And so you're oh, supposed there's to. There's no naked. Yeah, you can't. You got to be chast when you're at the. You're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, and so there are rule. you know, like um, for people, if they get if they want to get into a relationship like if they live there year-round they're supposed to wait i think at least three to six months before they would actually like engage in the relationship or you know so anyway i went swimming at this place regularly where i wasn't supposed to swim and um you're a rebel (laughs) i mean and i'm not really you know it's not like i'm this rebel but it's just you know like i don't really have rules in my life otherwise so it's just i don't know they're just certain things that you ask yourself, like, what am I doing here? Do I belong in a monastery? And then another part of you is like, should I live here forever? You know, did you ever think about becoming a monk or a nun? I thought about it. Not as seriously, I think, as some of the other people that I met, you know, did and do like they do become priests. And, um, I think ultimately it's not a place for me to spend my life. I mean, I wouldn't be able to write, you know, cause the schedule is kind of so strict. Um, but yeah, even the way you dress, you know, like if you're a woman, you're not supposed to wear spaghetti strap tank tops, you know? And I, I think I got talked to a couple of times by, a, to it from a priest, like, you know, you shouldn't be wearing that shirt, you know? So it's just, it's just interesting to see yourself come up against stuff like that. It's so weird how you draw but, the line on that stuff. And I mean, I guess I, I understand the necessity of rules in an environment like that, where people are trying to practice. Like yeah. If, you can't be walking, you know, if people are walking around naked, it's going to be hard to focus, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. But, uh, yeah. what the spaghetti strap versus the traditional tank, like, could you wear a traditional tank, but not a spaghetti strap? Yeah. I mean, sort of if the straps were right. wide. Yeah. Cover your shoulders. That's like Catholic thing in the train. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Um, here's what I struggle with. 
is that when you read uh, books by like Buddhist monks or you know any any kind of like uh, contemplative person who you know supposedly or um, actually has real insight, I can find myself um, frustrated with how easy they can make it sound. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you live on a monastery. Mm-hmm. Like I could, I could Zen out every day too. And your life is very uncomplicated Yeah. just by virtue of the simplicity of that existence. And that's a great choice and it's a noble choice. I don't look down at anybody who wants to live that kind of life, but when you're trying to advise people who are living in this, right. in like the soup of Los Angeles or wherever it is, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to practice and to live that way. Yeah. And yeah. You know, when you leave uh, after a summer of Tassajara, I have to imagine that re-entry must have been fairly jarring. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, were you able to carry over? Did, it, did how much? How quickly did stuff get lost, or did it get lost? Um, well, I kind of <laughs> transitioned myself by um, because Tassajara is part of San Francisco Zen Center, and they're also connected to Green Gulch. And so, I spent before going back to Chicago a few days at the San Francisco Zen Center, like a soft landing. Yeah, <laughs> so like I'm still in, you know, I'm still in another Zen Center. Yeah, because, you know, you can stay there, and but then I would go out into the city. Um, but yeah, I kind of needed that transition because it does feel crazy. It's it's interesting how crazy it feels. To Everyone's kind of, moving so fast and talking so loud. Yeah, and... just to come back, you know, to the rest of the world. But um, I, you know, being in Chicago, I still had my group there, and so it was. It was easier in that way um, to kind of keep hold, you know, some of that stuff. And and the teacher I had there, his name is Tygen Layton. Um, he's he's like very honest about like how difficult all of it is, you know, like um, and all of the people there. I mean, they're all lay practitioners, you know, they're all practicing, but living in Chicago, like they're not living at the monastery. So, you know, there are ways in which, you know, that helps, too. Um I don't know. It's weird because I, I feel like I've, I'm not like, even though it's, it's been a big part of my life, like I'm not a great Buddhist, you know, like I get angry. Do you consider yourself a Buddhist? I do. I mean, it's, it's, um, in the first year that I moved to LA, I I would go to ZCLA and sit. Um, but I haven't been able to find a group here and I've really, you know, it's funny because when I talk about my writing, I always end up talking about meditation and Buddhism, but the, like, honest fact of it is that for the last several years like i don't meditate very often i can't find a it's, group either i'm scared of a group there's yeah. part of me that resists it but there's also like uh, i mean it's also got to be logistically doable mm-hmm. i'm also worried about like who i might find there and that's sort of a dickish thing to say no i mean it, i think that's yeah and that makes sense to me i mean when i first became interested in buddhism i started going to different groups in chicago and honestly i never would have I think gone as far with it if I had not found a group like finally I just found this group and it was like oh yes like this is my place these are my people yeah and I just haven't found that in LA you know but I you know I can't blame that on my not sitting I I have a friend who does kundalini meditation and you know she's one of my best friends here and we just traveled together to London and she's wakes up every morning and does her meditations what is kundalini chanting chanting? I mean it's a kind of it's a kind of yoga you know but also they're there's like a meditation aspect to it. It's it's almost all based in chanting. Is Kundalini where um, you're holding the poses really long, but you're not? Kundalini is actually like really fast. Oh, it's it like is. like you're making lots of 
Yeah. Kind oh, of Iyengar. Fast Iyengar is the one where you're slower, slower holding yeah. poses for like an hour. And yeah. And she's just like pure discipline. Like she, you know, she does have places that she, she goes like Golden Bridge, you know, here in L.A. But um, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but she I don't know. She just has discipline in a way that I have not had in my life lately. So it's not like I can just sort of blame it on not finding a, a group in LA, but you could start a group yeah. right here in the garage. That's Come on true. over yeah. everybody. <laughs> you live too far away. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, like you said, it's like logistics. No, it's too. Logistics. You need like a neighborhood thing. Like I've thought mm-hmm. of like, maybe I'll put something up on Craigslist. I'll start one. And then I'm like, that just would turn bad. Who knows what I would get. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a dick, but I got, I'm working on that. That's yeah. what I need to work on. Yeah. I'll go to Tara. Was it Tarahasa? Tassahara. Tassahara. Yeah. I'll go to Tassahara and they'll be like, yeah, you're the group leader or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> got to facilitate a Craigslist group. Yeah. Um, has it helped your writing? You feel like um, that those experiences? Because like, I feel like there's a lot of similarity between writing and meditation. That like, sit in the chair, don't get up. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. You're going to squirm. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. And that's what I've found. I mean, it's, and I think it's why I sort of always end up talking about it when I'm talking about my writing process, because I see so many similarities between them and it probably has helped my writing but you know more than anything it's just interesting that i feel like they both can be so similar like in terms of their territories yeah um just in terms of for me like the unknowingness and the sort of sitting with something you know it's like my teacher at a certain point i remember he said like you should sit with this you know you have individual interview with them sometimes where you just talk about like questions you have with your practice and you know he was like you should sit with this thing i can't remember what the thing was and i was like what does that mean like does that mean i sit there and i think about it he's like no you don't think about it you just sit with it you know and you just kind of let it be there with you and um and i feel like i often write that way because it's like i will you know for instance i was saying if i start a new project i have like maybe like part of an image or something and so it's like with me, but I'm actually not trying to sort of make it clear yet, but it just stays with me kind of until the end. And then I can see what its part is, you yeah. know, in the whole thing. So it's like those kinds of things feel really parallel to me. And when you're sitting, you're focusing on your breathing. Mm-hmm. Like this is the Soto Zen. Are you doing any kind of mantra or is it just like inhale, exhale, inhale, yeah, exhale? No, it's, I mean, I think some people count their breaths, um, it's mostly an objectless meditation um, where you're not, you know, for the most part, you're not chanting. Um, and, and sometimes people do, but for the most part, it's more of like an emptier kind of thing. And you don't close your eyes. It's really hard for me to close my eyes when I meditate now. Oh, really? Like if I'm somewhere else where meditation is happening, which, you know, it often happens in yoga, but you face the wall, you just face a white wall, basically. And your eyes are kind of downcast. But they're you know? still open. Yeah. See, so- I close my eyes. Yeah. And I have to put on uh, headphones and listen to ocean mm-hmm. waves. Just to kind of... Just to drown out my screaming children. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> makes all sense. All I want is like a quiet, you know, and then I, I could come out here, but there's like spiders and like, you know, helicopters. It's like... Yeah. It's hard to get that silence. I long for it, but... Yeah. Yeah. So it's... it's I like the white wall. I became really fond of it. So it's it's hard for me to be in a situation where I'm facing someone else or... Yeah, no. We're all facing the same... I really just want the wall because it's... it itself it has this emptiness obviously and then i just feel like everything gets projected on it like everything your mind is doing all the images kind of and you i don't know it's just easier for me I'm to gonna try that see it yeah stare at a white wall yeah white's a good it's, color it's uh friendly yeah you yeah know, it feels as opposed to shutting your eyes and 
and I mean, like, I can often feel like, God, I'm really, I think this is the, this is the game, but I feel like I'm doing it. I'm like, this isn't, what am I doing? I just spent like 20 minutes just obsessing about something when I was supposed to be going deeper or, uh, relaxing, letting go of tension. Yeah. I can get wound up. Part of it. Sometimes you just see yourself wound up. Right. You know, you let it happen. Yeah. Wow. That was a deep, that was a deep, uh, (laughs) dive into Buddhism. I'm excited to talk to somebody who actually has done that kind of stuff. Yeah. Someone who keeps talking about it, but doesn't do it very regularly anymore. I'm always determined to, you know, I mean, it's part of a lot of the yoga I do. It's not completely gone, but do you think yoga's, uh, does yoga qualify? I think it, yeah. I mean, I think it does to a certain extent. It's, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's definitely something that helps me feel like I'm going deeper into my body, you know, or it's, you know, and you are often told by teachers to also like, let go of your thoughts and to just to kind of be present with the movements and things like that. So I think it is, I mean, I, but here's, here's it's the not thing. the same though. Well, and here's the thing, cause you talked earlier about having certain teachers, yoga teachers who uh, take you deeper. Mm-hmm. What I find in Los Angeles and I don't want to sound like an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but a lot of te- there's a lot of performance to yoga instructing in Los yeah. Angeles that might exceed yoga instructing in other cities because Los Angeles is show business. Right. It's like there's a lot of yoga teachers who have like an acting background and like that's yeah. their stage. And yeah, like, or dancers. Or yeah, or, you know, what I want is somebody who's a guide. Mm-hmm. Like guide, like let's take me into like that deeper place. Like I don't yeah. need like a stand-up comedy routine. Uh, or I don't need, uh, I mean, not that you can't, you have to be totally humorless, but sometimes it just feels yeah. like too performative and intrusive. Yeah, no, I agree. Or like they're playing music where it's like, dude, I don't need to listen to Pink Floyd. Right. Well, I'm, you know, I need to like get out of that, mm-hmm. you know, but I guess it's like people have their, their druthers. Yeah. No, I have many annoyances. Um, I have certain yoga teachers I, I kind of go to all the time because I, because I know I love them and the the other teachers won't work for me as well. And certain like once in a while, this thing will happen where if a teacher at the last minute cancels and then the sub shows up where I'm just really upset. I'm like, Oh my God. Cause you don't get your fix. Yeah. You're not going to get that, you know, and like you get like exercise, but you don't get the same. Exactly. It's not an exercise. It's not calisthenics. Yeah. If I wanted to do calisthenics, I'd just go, you know, do jumping jacks or whatever. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, you too. I appreciate you driving over here, and uh, it's a great to meet you. And I wish you well on the book that you're writing. Thank you. Uh, the one that's what partially said in the 1800s in England. Yeah, yeah. Three quarters of the way through. It's not entirely England. I work with um, like partly made up places and partly real places. It's kind of a yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wish you well. Thank you. All right, guys. That is Amina Kane. Wasn't she great? Go get her new story collection. It's called Creature, available now from Dorothy. Dorothy Project, Dorothy Books. You can find Amina online at aminakane.com and uh, over there on the Twitter where her handle is at Amina Kane. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music, as always. Be sure to check out Kill Rockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app. It's the best and most elegant way to listen. Get the app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps, whether you have an iPhone or an Android. The app is free. And uh, here's how it works. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to access everything, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's uh, as cheap as 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. 
gets you, you know, the premium subscription gets you access to all episodes anytime you want them. So do that if you're so inclined. Uh, if you would like to send me an email, the address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com. You can write to me and tell me, uh, what I should think about money. Mentor me. Contest my assertions. I don't know. Voice your support. <laughs> I can't be the only one who's troubled by this. Please tell me I'm not alone. Just get a little panicked. I want to do well. I want to support my family well. Have a good life. And then die. Is that, so, is that too much to ask? I just want to have a good life before I die. But what is a good life? I'm having a good life right now. Just like, dude, uh, I want a pool. Do you need a swimming pool? I don't fucking know. Please remember that E.M. Forster died of a massive stroke and that Isaac Denison died of what was recorded as, quote, emaciation. Emaciation? That's it for now. Uh, thank you to Amina Kane for uh, coming over here, sitting down, doing the show. Really enjoyed uh, talking with her. Go get her books, both of which appear on indie presses. Uh, I'm not sure if the first one, uh, I Go to Some Hollow, is, is still in print. I, there's some question about that when I looked it up online. But Creature from Dorothy Books is available now for sure. So uh, support an indie press, support Amina, get her book, slash books. Check her out at aminakane.com. Uh, all right, you guys, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I really do appreciate you listening. And I uh, hope you have a good holiday. If you're with your family, they're driving you crazy. If you don't have uh, family around and you're bummed out, uh, I send you my best good thoughts. That sounded, that's, a, that's kind of a um, heavy way to end. <laughs> Just, you know, it, it's, it's going to be over soon. The holidays are heavy. For a lot of us, slash most of us. It'll be over soon. Get to 2016. Hang in there. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 